The scripture reading for today is taken from Chaps, Acts chapter 6 um, through to Acts chapter 8, um, and a portion in between will be explained as opposed to read. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition rose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freed men, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, This fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Then the high priest asked Stephen, Are these charges true? In response to this question, Stephen preaches the sermon recorded in Acts chapter 7, in which he traces the history of Israel through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Then he focuses on Moses, through whom God gave Israel both the tabernacle, the forerunner of the temple, and the law. Quoting the prophets Amos and Isaiah, Stephen brings the sermon to a climax, recounting the exile and stating, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. And now we pick up the reading again at chapter 7, verse 53, as Stephen applies his message to the listening members of the Sanhedrin. You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him, you who have received the law that was given through angels but have not obeyed it. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears, and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, 
Do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. This is the word of the Lord. Good afternoon. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. On what day? On the day Stephen dies. Today, we're going to talk about persecution. The account that Luke gives us of the death of Stephen in Acts chapters 6, 7, and 8 marks a significant turning point for the church. On account of this persecution, all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. And surely we can't read those words without being reminded of Jesus' words. In Acts 1 verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. But this is not how we expected the next stage of the expanding mission of the church to begin, is it? There's no word about the Holy Spirit directing the church. There's no counsel of the, of the apostles to determine the timing. There's no gathering of the whole church to select the first missionaries. The outward mission of the Church of Jesus Christ that began in Jerusalem and continues to the ends of the earth these 2,000 years later begins with persecution. We don't expect it to be that way, but perhaps we should. The salvation that God offers to our sin-sick world was made possible by Jesus' death on the cross. Why would the mission to declare the good news of that salvation not also be marked by sacrifice? If the mission that God has called us into to share the love of Christ with a broken and hurting world, if that mission is to reflect the cost that Jesus bore to save us from our sins. Isn't it obvious that that mission would need to be marked by examples of suffering? Now, one thing that we cannot get away from in the book of Acts, as much as we may want to, is that suffering and mission are intimately linked. From the beginning to the end of Luke's story of the church, Jesus' disciples are imprisoned, beaten, tortured, even executed for their faith. 
I wonder, is it possible that at least in in some measure, the weakness of the church in much of the Western world today is directly related to our reluctance to embody that sacrificial gospel in our own lives? Have we become so attached to the kingdom come in all its fullness when there'll be no suffering, no tears, no death, that we're not willing to share in the cost to be paid now to see that kingdom come? Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we love you. We want to live all of our lives for you. Please open our minds, our hearts, and our wills to receive and respond to the word that you have for us today. We ask this in your name and for your glory. Amen. We meet Stephen at the beginning of Acts chapter 6. He's one of the seven chosen to oversee the distribution of food to those uh, widows in need in the church. We're not told where he comes from, but he's clearly a Hellenistic Jew. That is, he was likely born outside of Palestine, and certainly he'd been raised and lived most of his life elsewhere in the Roman world. So his language and his culture were Greek. Perhaps he was one of those who was converted at Pentecost, but whether that's the case or not, because the church itself is so young, He can only have been a believer for no more than a few months. And whatever his physical age was, and we don't know that, he is young in the faith. But even among the seven, who are all said to be men full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, even among them, he's singled out by Luke as a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And this uh, individual story begins with the statement in verse 8 that he is a man full of God's grace and power. And despite the role serving the widows that he's given, the things that Luke describes him doing beyond that appear remarkably similar to the works of the apostles, performing wonders and miraculous signs. It does seem as though the seven had the kind of influence among the Hellenistic Jewish believers that the apostles did among the Hebraic Jewish believers. They too were performing miraculous signs and preaching. Well, as a Hellenistic Jew, a Jew from outside of Palestine, Stephen would naturally have participated in the synagogue of the non-Palestinian-born Jews, the so-called synagogue of the freedmen. And that's where he gets into trouble. The so-called synagogue of the freedmen, as we're told in the the passage we read, is made up of Jews from Cyrene, Alexandria, and the provinces of Cilicia and Asia. And this uh, group would, would naturally have been conservative in their beliefs and practices, made up of people from other nations who had chosen to move back to their homeland out of a desire to be more faithful Jews, and already considered with some suspicion by native-born Jews. So the New Testament commentator Richard Longnecker says that the synagogue of the freedmen undoubtedly had a vested interest in keeping deviations among its members to a minimum, or else exposing them as outside its own commitments, lest its synagogue fall under further suspicion. 
They were more conservative, more resistant to new ideas because they had more to prove than other native-born Jewish groups. So Stephen, proclaiming Jesus in their midst as the long-awaited Messiah, naturally arouses their opposition. At first they argue with him, but when they find themselves in conflict with the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, they abandon argument and they adopt dishonest conspiracy. Verse 11, they secretly persuade some men to say, we've heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. They stir up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seize Stephen and they bring him before the Sanhedrin and they produce false witnesses who testify, this fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses has handed down to us. The essential charge is the charge of blasphemy. And blasphemy is words spoken against God. And in this case, they specify words spoken against the law of Moses and against the temple. Having dragged Stephen before the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin, the scene is now set in that very temple, in the same place where Jesus was tried, in the same place that Peter and John and the other apostles were interrogated, and by the same people. And Luke tells us that Stephen's face was like that of an angel, like one who had seen God, like Moses, and that everyone there could see this goodness, but it made no difference to them. Then the high priest asked Stephen, are these charges true? And Stephen's speech, which is cut off before he's able to finish with a proclamation of Jesus, addresses directly these false accusations about faithfulness to the traditions of the laws of Moses and faithfulness to the temple. What would you do if you were facing the threat of death at the hands of enemies of the church? Tens of thousands of Christians have faced this moment. Today, day by day, Christians in parts of the Middle East, Africa and Asia in particular, face this moment. In the last century, more Christians were put to death for their faith than in all of the preceding centuries put together. This is not a question of historical interest. If you doubt that, then just look at the websites of the Voice of the Martyrs or Open Doors. I've put the details of that uh, on the back of your uh, sheet today and also they're in the first worship mail out. What would you do if you were facing the threat of death at the hands of enemies of the church? Stephen must have known that preaching a sermon would only seal his fate. I remember when I was a young man hearing a Romanian pastor speaking in England after the collapse of communism in his country and and all across Eastern Europe. I'll never forget what he said. He'd been in prison with other pastors for proclaiming Jesus, which was illegal uh, in the atheistic state of Romania at the time. 
But in the prison, the pastors continued to speak to the other prisoners about Christ. He said when they were caught, they were savagely beaten by the guards. It was a deal. We were happy preaching the gospel. The guards were happy beating us. Everyone was happy. Preaching the gospel came with a price. They knew the price and they were willing to pay it. Stephen knew the price of his preaching. Stephen's sermon is what we call a historical recital. We see the same thing in some of the Psalms, Psalm 78, Psalm 105, Psalm 106. And also in Paul's preaching later in Acts in chapter 13, for example, when he preaches in the synagogue at Pisidian Antioch. And there are two main themes in Stephen's message. First, God has raised up leaders throughout Israel's history, and he focuses particularly on Joseph and Moses, leaders who were sent to deliver his people, but who were rejected by them. And second, he says it is God, not the tabernacle or the temple, who is to be worshipped. It is not the place of worship that is the issue. And there is precedent for that place moving. He uses their own scriptures to demonstrate that their accusations of unfaithfulness to the traditions and law of Moses and unfaithfulness to the temple are untrue. But that's not enough. He has a message for them, and he ends with these extraordinary words. And he must have known the impact of these words. There's 51, you stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you've betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. And so when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious, they gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven. He saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And at this they they covered their ears And yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, they dragged him out of the city, and they began to stone him. Why this vision of the king? That's what it means when it says a a vision of Jesus standing at the right-hand side of God. It doesn't mean Jesus was standing off to the right-hand side. It means... Jesus was standing in God's place of honor. Jesus is the ruler on the throne. Why this vision of Jesus as king at this time? It's hard for us to imagine what it's like to suffer the kind of systematic persecution that, that quickly became the normal daily life of Christians in the early centuries of the church. But what we can do is we can learn from those who've lived through persecution in recent history. Uh, The Romanian pastor who I heard speak all those years ago was called Paul Negru. 
He was born and raised, became a pastor, and lived for many years under the communist regime that ruled Romania for 45 years. He says we were not allowed to meet for Bible study. So a group of us would meet way out in the mountains in bushes to study the Bible in hiding. We were not allowed to elect our pastor for the church. Pastors were imposed on us by the communists. We were not allowed to print or distribute Bibles. The communists confiscated Bibles and they would turn them into toilet paper. They were determined to destroy Christianity within 20 years after they took power. Pastors were routinely arrested, imprisoned, and tortured. Paul Negru's friend Joseph Son was arrested and imprisoned several times in Romania during the 1970s. He was charged with being a Christian minister. That was an illegal offense in itself. And each time, he underwent several weeks of intense interrogation, beatings, mind games, And finally, he was exiled from the country in 1981. And Joseph Son said his imprisonment helped him form a clearer view of the biblical response to persecution. When the secret police officer threatened to kill me, he said, to shoot me, I smiled and I said, Sir, you don't understand. When you kill me, you send me to glory. You cannot threaten me with glory. During one particularly harrowing session of interrogation, um, don't worry, I'm not going to give any details uh, of that kind of thing in this message, but during one uh, interrogation, Son told his inquisitors that spilling his blood would only serve to water the growth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And part of the theology of suffering he learned was that tribulation is never an accident. It is part of God's sovereign plan for building his church. And so Son says, I told the interrogator, you should know that your supreme weapon is killing. My supreme weapon is dying. Now here's how it works, sir. You know that my sermons are on tape all over the country. When you shoot me or crush me, whichever way you choose, you only sprinkle my sermons with my blood. Everybody who has a tape of one of my sermons will pick it up and say, I'd better listen to this again because this man died for what he preached. Sir, my sermons will speak ten times louder after you kill me and because you kill me. In fact, I will conquer this country for God because you killed me. Go on and do it. Dying for the Lord is not an accident. It is not a tragedy. It is part of the job. It is part of the ministry. And it is the greatest way of preaching. Aren't those extraordinary words? Paul Negru says Christians should become missionaries only if they're willing to suffer and die for the gospel. If you're not ready to suffer, you better stay home. Because missions has a lot to do with suffering. For God's will to be done, believers must be willing to pay the price. On one occasion, Paul Negru says he visited a gifted Romanian hymn writer who was put in prison for 17 years and tortured daily for refusing to write songs glorifying communism. 
Each day after being thrown into sewage and kicked by other prisoners, he would write another hymn. Romanian churches sing from that collection of hymns to this day. And Paul Negru says, I went and visited him after he was released to get some encouragement. And when I arrived, he was bleeding because minutes before I got there, communist police had come and tortured him. I got angry, but he said, we aren't on earth to complain, but to praise the name of our Lord Jesus. He praised God for the beauty of suffering and prayed for his torturers. Now, why am I telling you all of this? What I discovered as a teenager from Paul Negru was that this same spirit that was in Stephen existed in my own lifetime in these Romanian believers. And now I know still exists in believers under persecution in Myanmar, China, Syria, North Korea, and a dozen other places today. This same spirit that was in Stephen still exists today. But still, why does Stephen have this vision of Jesus as king? Remember Jesus' words from the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. When we talk about being blessed, we don't think about being insulted, persecuted, beaten. But Paul Negru says somehow in our mindset we associate blessing with a time of peace prosperity and abundance. But if we're broke, ill, or suffering, or if we're arrested, or if someone is murdered for being a Christian, we believe that God has abandoned us. But Jesus linked the kingdom of heaven. He links his kingship, his throne, with persecution. There are blessings that only come with persecution. Suffering and persecution are essential parts of the Christian life. It is not something strange when you suffer. You'll experience the presence of the kingdom of God when you do. And as Stephen suffered, he experienced the presence of the king. Late in the summer of 1977, Joseph Son put all of his worldly concerns in order because he was expecting that he would die. He was encouraged by the faith of his wife, Elizabeth, but he prepared himself for what he believed was certain martyrdom. He was to meet a member of the uh, secret police in the restaurant of a Romanian hotel, and the communist officer had pledged to do what previous um, secret police officials had failed to do. He'd pledged to silence Son's preaching. And he was intending to do this by offering him a secular job in exchange for the promise that he never preach the gospel again. Now, turning down that job spelt at least hard labor in a prison camp, and it might very well mean execution. Son met with the man, and without flinching, of course, he turned down the job. 
He said, I told the man, I'm ready to die. You said you were going to finish me as a preacher. I asked my God and he wants me to continue to be a preacher. Now I have to make one of you angry and I decided it's better to make you angry than God. But I know you, sir. You cannot stand this kind of opposition and you will kill me one way or another. But I accepted that and you should know that I've even put everything in order and made ready to die. But as long as I am free, I will preach the gospel. The communist officer was equally unflinching in his response. He told Son to go and preach the gospel. Son said the officer made up his mind that if I was ready to die for it, then I should have it. And for another four years until he was exiled, he continued to preach with nobody disturbing him because that man, a key man in the secret police, decided that he should be free to preach because he was ready to die for it. But what of Stephen? Stephen is not freed. Being ready to die means being ready to die. Luke, here in Acts 8, though, he isn't telling the end of a story. He's telling the beginning. Look at what he says in Acts 7, verse 57. At this, they covered their ears, yelling at the top of their voices. They all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he'd said this, he fell asleep, and Saul approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. See, the end of this story is not about Stephen at all. It is about Saul, Paul as he would later be known. It's not the end of Stephen's story here. It is the beginning of Paul's story. Paul himself surely must have been a member of the synagogue of the freedmen because he too came from outside of Israel. Perhaps he was even a member of the Sanhedrin. And this event, the death of Stephen, produced a powerful response in him. He began to crush the church, going from house to house, dragging men and women off to prison. He's deeply affected by what he's seen. He cannot ignore it. He cannot live with it. And in his murderous rage, he pursues the believers who flee from this persecution in Jerusalem, and he sets off to Damascus. And on the way, what happens? He has a vision of Jesus. Oh, he asks who, who he's encountering, but of course he already knows. It's no coincidence that, that Paul was present when Stephen has a vision of Jesus. In no small part on account 
that Stephen was ready to die rather than give up preaching Jesus, Paul becomes the church's greatest missionary. The one who said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. How did he know that? Because he had seen it. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. On December the 13th, 1989, a group of Romanian Baptist pastors met together for prayer. And as they were praying together, they felt led to write a letter to Nicolae Ceausescu, the communist dictator. And in the letter, they called on him to let churches worship freely and to let people train their children in the faith. When we signed that letter, we knew we signed our own death warrant, they said. On the 17th of December, four days later, after preaching the first night of a crusade in Timisoara, Paul Negru said they found out that the police were about to arrest a pastor of a nearby Hungarian church. So the group decided that they would go and stand around his house. They would form a, a human chain of prayer. And they started on that Thursday night with 200. By the Friday night, there were 2,000 people circling the house. And the Saturday night, there were 10,000. Then they decided to move downtown and to pray over the headquarters of the Communist Party. And Ceausescu sent the troops in, and they opened fire on those in the front lines, uh, killing them. And Paul Negru says, what I saw in those next few moments is hard to put into words. We all knelt down in front of the guns and then stood up and shouted, God exists, God exists, God turns his face to Romania over and over until past midnight. The government in Bucharest called the people in Timisoara hooligans, influenced by the FBI and the CIA. But people began protesting in Bucharest as well. And on December the 21st, Ceausescu was arrested by his own army and he was executed by them on Christmas Day. The headline in one Romanian newspaper read, Christ is born, the Antichrist is dead. Paul Negru went on to become the head of the Baptist Union of Romania, and in the 1990s his church grew to become the largest Baptist church in Europe. The new Romanian government offered uh, him uh, prime-time evening television broadcast every night of the week. And so they showed Superbook, which some of you may even remember. It was an animated gospel presentation. And they invited people to call in who wanted to become Christians. Soon they were receiving 30,000 calls a day. And they arranged visits to every one of the people who was calling in. And 90% of those they visited accepted Christ on the first visit. The book of Acts is clear on this, and nothing is different in our own day. There can be no separation between mission and sacrifice. Our mission is to declare the sacrifice of Jesus 
And to do that, we must ourselves become a living sacrifice. Our mission is only God's mission in the manner of the example Jesus set for us, where we don't withhold any part of ourselves from the service of God. Jesus did not withhold any part of himself from us. Rather, as Paul says, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a human being, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Let's pray. Let me invite those who are going to lead us to, to come back up. We're going to sing in a moment, but let's just have a moment of quiet while they come up to reflect and respond to God, what he said this afternoon. The writer to the Hebrews says, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Amen. Let's respond as we sing. You've been listening to the First Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. For more sermons and information about our church's services and programs, please visit firstbc.org.